0: Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 124 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. It is the 28th of November, 2017. With me is Paul, the 12th man. Welcome aboard, Paul. Thanks, Fist. How are you tonight? Frustrated. Um, As you know, we tried to have Scott, uh, the Velvet Glove, as part of a three-way conversation and technology failed me tonight, dear listener. I had it all set up, everything seemed fine, and then... I plugged in an extra microphone for the 12th man and the whole thing decided it was very unhappy and crashed on me. So, Yeah, we'll miss you tonight, uh, Scott. Yeah, so Scott's uh, in bed early tonight and we'll try and do our best without you, Scott, and have you back next week. So there you go, dear listener. That's why Scott's missing. But we've got a full board of topics, 12th man, to, to rattle our way through. It's good to know we're still on speaking terms despite our differences over the past few weeks. I've had, I've had some people comment to me and say, no, the 12th man, he seemed a bit antsy with you last really? time. Yes. Oh. And I said, no, he's fine. He yeah, loves no, the debate. No,
1: there was, there was no emotional antagonism whatsoever. It no. was uh, purely ideological. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so,
0: no, dear listener, fear not. We're still good friends and happy to chat. Yep. Okay, we're going to kick off Queensland election uh, Result not yet formally announced, but all of the commentators are saying that it's pretty much Labor has snuck in again. They
1: appear to have uh, achieved the the victory they needed. Mm. Not a resounding victory, but a victory nonetheless.
0: Yes, you'll take what you can get, I would imagine. Absolutely. Yeah, so we on the podcast a week or two or three ago mentioned the preference deal that One Nation did not do, or their arrangement that they made, and that seems to have perhaps have been a crucial element in this 12th man, just to remind everybody, what they decided was that they were going to preference against any sitting member, whether they were Labor or LNP, and put them last, except for, I think, a few, a very select few who they thought had done a good job, and they'd be prepared to... Um, them. Well, I'm not sure how often that happened. But basically, any sitting member they preferenced against.
1: This is One Nation. Hmm. Oh.
0: And, you know, you would have thought, well, that's at the end of the day probably going to even out hmm. in terms of its effect. But not necessarily the case, 12 man. Because if you think about it, if you had a, a an LNP guy in power, you know, just want to see... And, and is the elected character by a narrow margin. And if you've got a resurgent One Nation party who picks up 10, 12, 15% that they didn't previously, the, the, the party they're most likely to take it from is the LNP.
1: And that's exactly what happened.
0: And then those preferences swap over to Labor and gives a victory, probably, to a Labor person in a narrow electorate. On the other hand, if you had a Labor person holding an electorate, and the LNP preferenced against them, even though LNP's resurgent, they're probably not really taking votes so much from the Labor Party. Mm-hmm. They would have been taken from the LNP, in which case it didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. So that preference deal or no deal is probably quite significant at the end of the day. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, so do you, you see that as a strategic mistake on the part of the LNP?
0: If they wanted... Depends if they wanted Labor returned or not.
1: They seemed to be trying to, uh, you know, have a bet each way, didn't they, during the campaign? I don't know that there was a lot of... There must have been strategy behind it, but,
0: you know, they to try and show themselves as the rebellious anti-establishment party. But...
1: One Nation, yeah. Yeah, um, Mm.
0: but if that was their plan, uh, unless their plan was to have Labor re-elected, it wasn't a good plan. So federally, you know, if you were Bill Shorten, you'd be saying to One Nation, just do all that again, please, federally, because that'd be great. Yeah, so it was interesting. We didn't really, you weren't here for that podcast, I think uh, it was just Scott and I, but at the face of it, it seemed like it would make no difference, but Mm. when you really thought about it, it was always going to make a difference, so... Mm. So there you go. Um, Anastasia Palaszczuk is back in
1: for another three years. She is, apparently. Four years, actually.
0: Four, yes, fixed year. fixed Four-year four year fixed year term. term now. Indeed. What
1: did you think of that? Good idea. Oh, really? I, I, I have the opposite view. I prefer the flexibility and the, um, the element of... Um, keeping the government on their toes, you know, uh, aspect of non-fixed terms.
0: How does that keep the government on its toes?
1: It means that they have to be always considering that if they they lose uh, confidence... But it's the Premier who calls an early election if they want an early election.
0: Mm. So wouldn't you say it actually keeps the opposition on their toes? Well, it, it may work be, both ways, but... Well, it can only work one way, because... It always works in favour of the incumbent
1: premier mm. because if the polls aren't good, then just they don't, don't call an election. It. But well, yeah, they have to call one after three years, obviously. Yeah. So I think well,
0: fixed term is good because I personally because I don't see why a sitting premier should be given a tactical advantage. Oh, I, I see. Don't see. How they deserve yeah, it?
1: I see. So four years are up. And, and I think Whether th- they're high or low in the polls, yes. they have to have an election. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, maybe. I think four is better
0: than three because you can actually perhaps get something done. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to the polls every three years, you, you you know, you can only put out one bad news budget Mm. in the first year, and then by the second and third, you're having to have the the sweeteners to
1: get re-elected. Yeah, and people have been saying that for years. Of Mm. course, that that's true federally as well, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, um, So, there we go. That's Queensland.
0: Election Do you think
1: we'll switch to fixed terms federally as well, eventually? I, I can't
0: imagine any of our current crop of
1: politicians making any
0: changes on anything. I just can't imagine getting anything done, really.
1: Mm.
0: I just can't see it. Yeah. Uh, since our last podcast, I think voluntary assisted dying, I don't think we had the, the decision at that point in Victoria. So really? it passed through the upper house and yes. has to go back to the lower house on just a minor point. Oh, okay. But it seems to be that that will be no problem mm. and in all likelihood they'll get their assisted dying legislation in Victoria. Mm. Well done to the Andrews government. There's somebody actually doing something. Mm. In the scheme of things, of politicians in the country... Is the only one actually doing something?
1: Yeah, Andrews is um, quite impressive
0: in that respect. Mm. So, uh, so good on you, Andrews government, for getting that through. And on that score, the Greens federally have said that they are thinking of introducing federal legisl- legislation mm. yes, to provide assisted dying federally. Mm. And I thought to myself, 12th man, well, how does that work? Because what's the separation of powers going on here? Because we've got a Victorian government making laws about assisted dying, how can the federal government also make laws about assisted dying? It's
1: state law, isn't it? Well, I thought so. I thought... Is it merely to counter any future intervention by the federal government uh, as happened in the Northern Territory case several years ago?
0: Well, okay, the territories are are simple in the sense that the federal government has the ability to tell the territories what their laws will be. Mm. So that was easy for uh, when previously the Northern Territory had brought in assisted dying and Kevin Andrews passed a bill federally to say... It's kiboshed. So in relation to the territories, the federal government has jurisdiction to pass these laws. In relation to the states, dear listener, again, a bit more constitutional law here, but when we had a whole bunch of colonies, and which were the states, and they decided we need a federal government, and the question comes up, well, why do we need a federal government? Well, obviously, so we can have a defence force, and so we can print money, and There's a whole range of laws that need to be consistent across the whole country. So we need to give the federal government power to deal with things like immigration and customs and money and all sorts of stuff. So when they formed the constitution, when they got together to write it, they said, federal government, here are the areas that you have power to operate. And if it's not listed in this list then the state governments retain all of the power. So in order for the federal government to actually be able to do something on assisted dying, it needs to be spelled out in the Constitution. And is it? Well, I didn't think so, but (laughs) dear listener, most of these are listed in Section 51. And section, Section 51, Subsection 23, Capital A, says that the federal government has, in effect power to make law in respect of medical services. So the question is is making law in relation to assisted dying making law in relation to medical services? What else would it be? Well normally you would think of medical services as things keeping you alive but it doesn't necessarily have to be does it?
1: Hmm well, I mean, it is something, a procedure that will be done with the supervision and participation of medical personnel, so surely it fits in that area, doesn't it? The little bit of reading I've done this afternoon suggests that
0: yes, it would come within the power, so the federal government could pass a law in relation to assisted dying. Mm. But, but, 12th man, this raises a conundrum because if indeed the federal government has power in this sphere, then they could turn around to Victoria and say, actually we don't like
1: you know oh. we don't like your law and we're gonna kind of it. Indeed. That's interesting. But they haven't done that, have they? Well they haven't. But and they haven't even tried, they haven't even talked about I it. I haven't read anything about
0: people even talking about
1: it. But if if the Greens are
0: correct, that the federal government has power to make law in respect of um, assisted dying. And where there's a conflict, so say the state makes a law and the federal government makes a law, and if you say the federal government has power, then the federal government overrides. So the danger of the Greens raising this issue interesting, for a total Australian assisted dying law is that get enough
1: crazies um, in federal parliament and they could turn around the Andrews government ball And say, oh, thanks, thanks Green's party. <laughs> now right. we know that thanks. we can actually crush all of you guys thanks. that we don't like. <laughs> thanks for the idea. So, there you go,
0: dear listener. There is uh, there's a risk that's, you yeah. know, in the background.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: Here's the... You know, when we talked about uh, marriage equality and we said to the dear listener, well, you know, the the plebiscite will be won and then it's going to be a discussion on freedom and exemptions. And I think we were ahead of the game when we were talking about that.
1: Oh, we're usually ahead of the game.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Well, I'm going to put us ahead of the game on assisted dying legislation. Now, what's going to happen now is hospitals in Victoria deciding whether they're going to even offer the service that's that's where everything will be heading now so you will get you know as you know a lot of hospitals are run by religious organizations and a lot of them are going to say well we want to exercise our religious freedom and we're just not going to offer that service that's what's
1: that it. may not be a big problem in the capital cities where there are a range of choices, but it may be a problem in the regional centres where there might only be one major hospital. Correct. And if it's run by a religious organisation... Correct. ..it could narrow down the options for people yeah. needing that service.
0: Mm. Mm. And even in you know a metropolitan area,
1: if you've got somebody
0: who is in a, you know, a Catholic hospital, for example, and enters a stage of life where they decide, I've had enough, I want to mm-hmm. check out, and I'm going to use this assisted dying legislation, the risk is what will, they'll repeat what happened in Canada. And in Canada, the religious hospitals refuse to allow people to sign the necessary paperwork.
1: To get out possible. of hospital. Correct.
0: <laughs> Correct. <laughs> They wow. I mean, they would not assist they in any way. Wouldn't
1: discharge them.
0: Well, well, they made it extremely difficult for people to get into the hospital with the paperwork, and so people uh, who had the paperwork for these uh, patients to sign for assisted dying would sometimes have to pose as florists, and or in order to get into the hospital to see the people with the paperwork and get things signed. Oh. So they actually made it quite difficult for existing patients to to sign and transfer out. Wow. That's what goes on. Mm. And uh, Interesting. And all sorts of terrible things happened where there was one chap who, uh, in order to gain competency, they had to reduce his medication, which meant he was in extreme pain. And then he was transferred to a hospital that would... Provide the service, he was in complete agony because he, his drugs had been dialed down. So, there are all these issues, dear listener, that are going to come up in Victoria. Got a link to an article here. Uh, most of Victoria's major hospitals are refusing to say whether they will allow their clinicians to prescribe euthanasia drugs when the practice is likely legalized in 2019. So, um, uh, So, yeah, many of them are yet to decide and they're thinking about it. So just passing law isn't good enough these days. You've got to convince everyone along the way. So so that's that,
1: 12 man. Interesting,
0: yeah. Um, With the marriage equality and these freedom of religion things, one of the hopes I had was that maybe that there's now a debate about religious freedom that some people will stick their head up and say, don't worry about um, providing special religious exemptions for cake bakers and stuff. What do you mean we allow them to um, sack a gay teacher because they're not upholding Catholic morals? What, What do you mean there's all these exemptions? Maybe in the debate people will start questioning the existing privileges and we had an example where Doug Cameron uh, in the Senate as part of the debate uh, basically gave a speech referring to his own grandchildren and special religious instruction classes and how like 40% of the school had to twiddle their thumbs in a spare room while the classes were being conducted and Mm. questioning well, why the hell is that happening and don't give me this nonsense about poor persecuted Christians when you've got all this sort of Carry on happening. So mm. that's the sort of stuff we don't hear about enough.
1: Talk me Indeed, particularly in the, um, the federal parliament. Yeah. So well done, uh, Doug Cameron. Indeed. I
0: and similarly, the Western Australian government uh, is apparently getting legal advice in relation to the ability of religious schools to um, to either sack staff or indeed to um, to refuse to take certain clientele so oh as students yes so there's a reference here this group was making a submission to the government and they wrote a letter pointing to a 2015 um, example in which a 7 year old girl was withdrawn from Mandura's foundation christian college after her gay father was reportedly told uh, that she could only stay on as a student if she never discussed his sexuality The principal of the school was noted as saying at the time, if I'd known she had gay dads, I would never have enrolled her. Wow. And apparently the Western Australian legislation is broad enough that they can get away with that. And now, with all the carry-on, looking at privileges, they're going to actually examine that and say, is that a good idea? So, So that's good.
1: Hmm examining the privileges is good so yeah it's a bit shocking when you uh i mean you sort of understand when a um a, you know an evangelical christian school doesn't want to hire an atheist or perhaps a gay teacher you know i mean i i'm not saying i approve of that but you can sort of understand where they're coming from but to reject a child on the basis of having a gay parent, that's uh, thats pretty objectionable. Yeah. But then, I mean, I would never enrol my child in one of those schools to start with. I don't know about you. I don't think you would either. I wouldn't, but, you know,
0: maybe you don't have a choice. Maybe it's the, the only school in town. In, in, the, in the district or mm. it's, you know, walking distance from home or something mm. like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Um, We mentioned previously, one of the things about this whole religious freedom debate is the characters coming out of the woodwork, and Matt Canavan was one who really came out of the woodwork in this time, and you didn't think he was quite the Bible basher either. I didn't, actually.
1: I I admittedly didn't know that much about him.
0: Mm. He, He came out with a statement saying, I'm trying to fight to ensure that we 're not a persecuted minority, Senator Canavan said, mm. there is no other country to flee to in the world if we lose, really there's no other planet we can take ourselves to. What about the United States? Well,
1: <laughs> the Christians seem to be pretty deeply entrenched over there It'd be perfect for him, wouldn't it yeah. mm. so um so yeah that's good
0: you know there's no other planet we can take ourselves to, mm. but meanwhile. He wants to uh, open a coal-fired power station and, and get the Adani coal mine up and running he as does, quickly indeed, as possible, yeah. mm. which isn't going to do a lot for this last remaining planet that we're mm. relying on. So, uh, But so. does
1: he think um, God is going to save the planet miraculously, regardless of uh, what we humans do to it? Well, or if not save it,
0: perhaps come back and uh, whisk some of us to heaven and some to hell in the near future, so why bother protecting it because Judgment Day is near. You know, that,
1: that is... But he doesn't come across as that sort of uh, fundamentalist, does he?
0: No, I haven't heard him talking about that sort of... He hasn't quite no, gone that the,
1: far, but... He's not a rapture sort of there's, fan. There certainly
0: have been statistics about the concern that fundamentalist Christians have with climate change. And their concern, in Australia? Uh, no, yeah. in America. Mm. And their concern was a lot less than the general public. Yeah. And one rationale was because a significant number believe that Judgment Day is going to happen in the yeah. near future, yeah. in their lifetime, and therefore, you know, what's it matter whether you... Uh, believe the planet because we're all out of here very soon
1: and 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 of course we think of the Jehovah's Witnesses as being a little bit sort of uh, loopy fringe cult but in fact they illustrate that very well with their literature which I'm sure you've seen uh, depicting you know rolling verdant hills With uh, humans of various skin colours, lions, deer, all mingling in this sort of paradisical... Is that the Jehovah's Witness version of heaven, is it? Yeah, because they believe that God will, if I've got it right, right, remake the earth. Uh, okay, and undo all that whatever damage is done, and then we, you know, we okay. we live all happily ever after together. Back to the Garden of Eden, sort that of that sort uh, of thing, yeah. Oh, yeah. But but with with lions, you know, right. you know, we put our arm around a big right. lion. Yeah, but they're I'll, no longer I'll carnivores. Vegeta- <laughs> I'll go vegetarian. <laughs> yes. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, famously, of course, the interior secretary under Ronald Reagan, way back when. Uh, believed that it was okay to sell off the national parks, cut up, cut down all the trees because, after all, we won't need it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, when God comes back and recreates the earth, which will be any time, any time soon. soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. bit of a worry, isn't it? Yep. Uh, regular listeners
0: will know. Certainly, over the last couple of weeks, we've had our discussion about these sort of cake bakers and their ability to unfairly discriminate against Mm. against poor gay people who might want a wedding cake. And Essential Report has polled a 1,000 Australians and asked them a question, which is, if Parliament passes legislation to allow same-sex marriage, do you think that the legislation needs to include more protections for religious freedoms... Or do you think current laws already provide enough protections for religious freedoms? Which is essentially, you know, how many of you, dear Australians, think that, uh, you know, cake bakers should be allowed exemptions and, and how many of you don't? Anyway, those thinking that their needs to Be more protection for religious freedom, i.e., we need to allow more religious privilege. The percentage who think that is 37% of the population. That's an unbelievable number, I think. Uh, uh, those who think current laws provide enough protections for religious freedoms, 42%, and the don't know is 21. So, that's a lot of people who are potentially in the, uh, well, your camp. Mm. Yeah, we're happy to see it to I be legal. I feel vindicated. Yeah, well,
1: uh, yeah, uh, well A little you, bit. You really, just,
0: just because a lot of people agree with you doesn't mean that you're right. No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> Nor does it mean I'm wrong. Uh, uh, let's just see here. Other questions that were asked. Um, Would you support or oppose the same-sex marriage legislation, including each of the following? Um, Allowing ministers of religion and celebrants to refuse to officiate same-sex weddings if they believe in the traditional definition of marriage. 63%. Happy to see ministers and celebrants deny same-sex weddings. Uh, Again, Uh, On this particular one, allow service providers to refuse to supply services to same-sex weddings, venue hire and wedding cake. So this is actually a more specific version of what we were just talking about. So rather than just general, do you think there should be more protection for religious freedom, this is specifically on our point of allowing service providers to refuse to supply services to same-sex weddings, 43%, dear listener. Agree with the 12th man. There you go. Um, uh, One here. Allow parents to have their children removed from classes which don't reflect their views on marriage. So this is the sort of so-called fear about safe schools. And 42% think that. But... Schools don't run lessons on
1: marriage and views. It makes you wonder, in in the future, will parents be demanding that at the beginning of an academic year, Mm -hmm. schools give them a detailed list of the curriculum, Yes. what topics will be touched upon, and uh, will parents be able to opt their children out of any classes they don't like? Well, that's right. Does the biology
0: class teach creationism or evolution? You know, is, is that where we're at now? Yeah. Are we going to say to parents, well, if you don't like uh, evolution as a
1: theory, then you can get your kid withdrawn from the biology class? Does that's the s- society and environment class uh, teach environmental um, conservation? Yeah. See, what people do, if you feel strongly enough about this
0: at the moment, is you homeschool your kids. So, a lot of homeschool kids are homeschooled because their parents are religious fanatics.
1: That's, I would say, I don't know what the percentage is, but I would say it'd be over 90%. Yeah. It?
0: Unless they're in a remote area, that mm. there's just no schools. Yeah. Yeah you know on a cattle station out west yeah. or something
1: yeah and and you know you if you want to go looking you can find videos on the internet of these um families in America you know with um you know six kids and they're all dressed in nice, you know, the girls in lovely, pretty dresses and the boys in... It's sort of a
0: bit of old-fashioned um, House on the Prairie style of... Just like yeah, that, yes. you know.
1: And then the interviewer starts asking the kids, you know, what's, um, you know, five times six? And yeah. they're like um, 22. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Really quite sad, you know, yeah. for the kids yeah. that they were so poorly taught. Yes. By their parents, yeah. some of them. Uh, look, I, I dare say there are some that are brilliantly taught by their parents. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but you know, there's no obviously guarantee, and and you know, teaching certainly has some um, facets that require a bit of um, professional training. Certainly does help, mm. and not every parent is you know intellectually or emotionally equipped mm. to deliver that. Mm. So, you, you have to feel for the kids.
0: In some of those fundamentalist communities in America, for example, where they do homeschooling and, and home birthing, um, what, what you find is when kids eventually escape the rare few that do and leave the community and go into the big wide world, they have no proof of identity uh, that they can show the government because oh, really? they don't have a certificate. birth certificate. Oh. They've never been registered in a school. They' have never been taken to a hospital they the government has has nothing on them, and you know they escape these communities and end up somewhere and uh and then have this problem of having to prove that they're not some Canadian who's mm. just wandered across the border
1: indeed yeah tough on them so um oh, it's it t- must be hard for them to to really fit in with mainstream society in some respects as well,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, In terms
1: of getting a, a decent job.
0: Yeah. Anyway, that is... Uh, that is the um, the statistics on the number of people happy for... Then you hire people and cake bakers to refuse service. I find that one frightening, Dwarf Man, that, mm. that there's that many people, number of people who agree with you. <laughs> <sighs> so... You know, dear listener, we started this podcast with you know, looking at news, politics, changes in society with a, with a focus on the effect of religion and an idea of promoting secularism. And at this point in Australian history, the Prime Minister has decided to call an inquiry looking into religious freedom protection in Australia. And Malcolm Turnbull has appointed Philip Ruddock to look at whether Australian law adequately protects the human right to religious freedom.
1: This is an important moment in our secular history in Australia, Twelfth Man. It's significant. Where does Philip Ruddock stand in terms of religion?
0: I'm glad you asked. I'll just mention at this stage, he's going to be assisted by... um, President of the Human Rights Commission, Rosalind Croucher, retired judge Annabel Bennett, and Jesuit priest Frank Brennan. <laughs> Okay, so let's start with Philip Ruddock. Where where does he stand on, you know, have, what, what's this panel like? This is a panel that's going to be deciding religious freedom. Who are they? What He's are famously
1: a, a long-term member of Amnesty International, but I don't know what his religious convictions are. Oh, but he was also, you know, famous
0: for being very hard on refugees and and turning back the
1: boats and all that sort of stuff so yes. um so he's and even he's, recently he put up a robust defense of that policy mm, so his human um
0: human rights credentials are pretty poor so but that's beside the point in terms of this debate i think
1: i think that's a little unfair to say that because he uh, defends a, a, a government policy an immigration policy which is a, a very yeah, a contentious one, that he's that he's, uh, he doesn't have good human rights credentials because, after all, he is a long-term member of amnesty. And the core reason for amnesty existing was to protect people of conscience, prisoners of conscience. That was their original reason for coming into existence, wasn't it? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Was it? Yeah. I mean, they've branched out a bit yeah, in, well, in recent like, years. The
0: current, you know, the current... Ethos of Amnesty International, though
1: would be to find that refugees should be placed wherever they want yeah. to be placed. yes indeed, they broadened their agenda, yeah. but you know the 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 iconic symbol of Amnesty is a candle surrounded by barbed wire, so yes. the candle of light representing hope, yes, surrounded by barbed wire representing uh, political tyranny and oppression of people who have a different point of view, yes. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, let me rephrase it. The, the The leftist modernist view of human rights, as probably espoused by the modern Amnesty International, would not view Philip Ruddock with great uh, affirmation based on his very vigorous um, support and working of the immigration laws when he was in power. But how about that? Yeah. So at one level, you might argue he was a champion of human rights. I mean, if you, in his if own you're way. A,
1: yes. I mean, his, ha- his heart was in the right place, I, I, I think. I don't know about that. But anyway. I'm going into so, bat for Philip on you,
0: this one. <laughs> Good on you, talk man. Okay. Um, how does he stand on this sort of marriage equality, religious freedom sort of argument and... Well, first off, in 2004, Ruddick was the Attorney-General who introduced the amendments to the Marriage Act that explicitly defined marriage as being between a man and a woman. So he actually introduced the legislation in the the, first place. At the behest of John Howard, surely. No doubt, but he was the Attorney-General who did it. Uh, Secondly, got a quote here from him in an article where he said, I respect religious diversity. People should be free to make their own choices, and I want to ensure the law doesn't inhibit the right of people to make those choices.
1: That That's would a indicate, standard line, though, isn't it? There's nothing particularly exceptional in that. It's got a bit of a libertarian flavour to it, and you've given me the thumbs up there,
0: so uh, so there's that. Um Uh, How about this one? This is going back to 2015. Um, Referring to Philip Ruddick and and another politician. Uh, Two senior coalition MPs have suggested Australia could do away with the Marriage Act entirely and instead have civil unions for everyone with only religious organisations able to marry couples. The article goes on, but dear listener, we've been saying for a while that in other countries you go to the civil registry and get married and if you want to have a religious service afterwards, you're welcome to. He became aware of that practice, but he misunderstood it to be one where you go to the registry office and you get a, a, civil, uh, a civil union, not a marriage, and that if you want to be married you have to go to a church or a synagogue so that was his misunderstanding of what happens overseas and he thought that's a great idea but only religions be allowed to marry people and not allow a civil registry office to do it
1: yeah i don't know i think you're um, you're reading maybe a little too much into his um, his act but
0: ah uh, well, let me just see if I can find the... Case. But a
1: civil union has slightly different um, legal ramifications, doesn't it? When it was noted
0: that this would mean that non-religious
1: couples of any
0: sexuality would not be able to marry, Mr. Ruddock said, it may be an issue that if they want to have a marriage, that they want to go to a church or a synagogue. His suggestion was also reinforced by uh,
1: Scott Morrison, but...
0: That was his intent.
1: To make marriage seriously a, a religious act. Correct. And that if you
0: go to a registry office, it's just a civil union. But if you want to be called married, you'd have to go to a church. This is the guy who's being put in charge of... Yeah. an inquiry into whether we have enough mm. protection of religious freedom. Have you, Are have you, you starting to get worried?
1: Well, I, I'm just wondering if you've dug into his um, r- religious life, if any. I couldn't find uh,
0: anything beyond that mm. at this stage. Yeah. So, so it'll be interesting thought, to dig a bit further. I thought that was enough to make anybody worried. Mm. You know, it certainly
1: arouses some suspicion, so I'll give you that. <laughs> The
0: other person on the panel, uh, one of them, Jesuit priest and lawyer, Father Frank Brennan. He's been appointed. Do you remember him?
1: I remember him, yeah. Sometimes appears on um, Q&A. Yeah, he has quite a prominent public profile,
0: doesn't he? He does, yeah. So he's on the record on a few things. Mm. When it came to uh, marriage equality... He said if he was a Member of Parliament, he would only vote in favour of it on basically four conditions. One of which was the whole cake baker thing, providing special exemptions, plus a few other things. But um, uh, On other issues, he sort of quotes some hypothetical things. Should a church school be able to decline to offer married quarters to a teacher in a same-sex marriage? I would answer yes. Should a church aid care facility be able to decline to offer married quarters to a couple who had contracted a same-sex marriage? I would answer yes. So this is his previous form. I would suggest that when it comes to his role on the inquiry, he's going to be very much in
1: favour of lots of religious Mm. protection yeah, he does come Privileges. across as um, certainly not yeah. having a, a, an equal view of um, same-sex marriage as opposite-sex marriage. Mm.
0: This is the same guy who said, if they change the law about the seal of the confessional, then I'll ignore the law. I just won't, uh, you know. If if a paedophile confesses to me, he won't violate the. Then seal I won't of the go confession. to the police. Mm. Yeah, and we a bit of a worry, isn't it? Somebody has said that, and they get a role on a commission, you
1: know, on an inquiry panel. How does that work? You've got me there. I mean, yeah. he's he's publicly stated he's willing to break the law. Yes. And, and to protect he, paedophiles. Yeah, and yet he still commands enough respect in um, in the government. Yes. To be appointed to a panel of. Yeah. Uh,
0: quite, quite important. He's so beholden to his religious faith that yeah. he's going to have that position. And we're putting him in a, in a role to advise Do, on what...
1: Does it religious... remind you of people who belong to a different religion and some of the things they say in relation to how they prioritise their religious law and national law or, or thinking law? You've got me? Maybe you've got some in mind. Well, I've several times um, come across references to Islam. Oh, uh, right. Okay. (laughs) In which it's stated that uh, the law of Allah uh, is preeminent and is certainly to be followed before the law of any terrestrial um, realm, if I can put it that way. Yes. Well, it's as much a political belief,
0: isn't it? So, um, yeah, very similar in that sense, that it's placed at a higher level than the law of the land. Yeah. So... So it's Jesuit hilarious. priest Frank Brennan prepared to protect pedophiles will not break the seal of the confessional and uh, he's been considered a suitable character on this panel ah oh, dear meanwhile Adelaide Archbishop Philip Wilson is facing a two week hearing starting today over charges of concealing child sex abuse offenses of another priest so it doesn't seem that it related to the confessional it Related to him just knowing about it and not doing
1: anything, yeah. and um, it, it's a form of aiding and, ab- and abetting uh, criminal um, activity, isn't it? Well, it seems like there's an offence
0: for concealing a serious indictable offence. Yeah. So. Well, you yeah.
1: know, you know, school teachers are legally required to report suspicion of child abuse yeah. among students. Yep it's a similar thing isn't it whereas okay. but i mean not just suspicion he he's actively he's accused of actively uh concealing an offender isn't he or helping That's an offender to evade justice is that what well, it's about the charge seems to
0: be concealing a serious indictable offence mm. so um, so it's saying that you know this alleging that he knew about it mm. so um so there you go that is uh, there's legislation out there of different types. Presumably, if a priest refuses to break the seal of the confessional, then Father Frank Brennan, in between being a member of this panel, if he ever did it, could be battling that sort of thing.
1: Of course, he wouldn't come out publicly and, and proclaim that uh, No, he's concealing He something. wouldn't,
0: but you never know. The actual perpetrator might come out later and say it. You know, once found guilty, might say, oh, I feel really bad. In fact, mm. I told Father Frank, you know, I, well, I, I told my priest because uh, it was a confession and he didn't do anything. Like, that can happen.
1: And it comes out later that his priest was? Uh,
0: whoever, yeah. So priests can be caught that way. Mm. Yeah. So um, that's possible. So uh, the other members of the panel, I couldn't say whether they were certainly nothing on the record about their views on religious freedom type issues. Mm. Uh, although, uh, actually, no, I won't say that. The, one of the panel members is a is a high placed lawyer and she has been involved in stuff, but it didn't seem that
1: she had a bias in any particular mm. way. But what you'd like to see is um, some people who are actually publicly known. As being non religious, exactly. just to provide a little balance exactly. of perspective got, on the panel. Yes, because we've got at least one, you know, Jesuit priest is clearly going to be pro. And we friends. know from the last national census yeah. that roughly at least 30% of Australians have no particular religious affiliation. Yep. Yeah. And probably quite a lot of them are complete non believers. Yep. Yeah. Why shouldn't they have some representation on the panel? Yeah. So, um, so our friend Brian Morris from the
0: National Secular Lobby got in touch and, uh, with various groups such as this podcast and has said, please contact your group members, that's you, dear listener, to say that um, there's no voice on this panel for the secular view and he's saying that you should phone Malcolm Turnbull's office office on O two six two seven seven double seven double zero to state that there must be a secular voice on Rudd's panel. You could even nominate one if you like. You could, you could ask for the the Iron Fist. Why don't you volunteer? I oh, will. I'll volunteer if you put if if enough people put my name forward. I'll I'll okay. accept the position. Saying that's, so. that's, that's a good proposition, dear listener. Contact your local member. Contact Malcolm Turnbull's office and say. There is a guy in it's,
1: Brisbane yeah. <laughs> who's willing and able to travel and uh, sit on that panel. And provide an alternative viewpoint. And if not him, then somebody like, you know,
0: maybe Meredith Doig from The Rationalists or somebody, at yes. least some voice, uh, or maybe Brian Morris himself for that matter. Indeed. Um, really, it's this is an important one, dear listener. Mm. An, in, an inquiry into religious freedom, it doesn't often happen... Um, stop listening now, pause the podcast and hop on the computer and fire off an email to somebody, for goodness sake. Okay. Presumably you've come back from that, so we'll continue.
1: Um, ah. <laughs> you, are you still watching q and A? I I missed it last night because I was otherwise uh, engaged, but, uh. yeah, I still... Look, I, I watch it either until I find it infuriating... Uh, too boring sometimes, but I, I just tend to find the panels are not really representative of the diversity of opinion in this country. Do you find the same? Well, I, I'm just, I'm actually just dirty on
0: panels altogether because I, I just see. don't think they can get into the meat and depth of mm-hmm. things. So
1: they occasionally have some very interesting people on the panel. Yeah, uh, Brendan O'Neill from the UK. Yeah. He's always good value. And they have a few others that are sometimes quite interesting.
0: Maybe, but I can't drill down into things. You know, I think even, you know, like the Atheist Convention that um, uh, got cancelled, mm. it seemed to me a lot of it is, you know, three or four Atheist celebrities on a stage as part of a panel, you know, with a moderator and a QA and a at the end of it, and just doesn't do anything for me because they can't get into the meat of the subject in any depth because they've got to share the stage and different minds take things in different directions that don't actually drill down in a, in a coherent direction.
1: So, Have you never seen any good sort of uh, vigorous discussions or debates on, on the internet? That you, not so you much in could? panels, like one-on-ones. Yes, you know where they have, uh, like it might be two or three on each side debating in an a issue. formal
0: debate. Yeah, yes, sometimes, they sometimes
1: they you see where they've done Oxford
0: debates, exactly. But that's because each speaker gets a good three, four, five-minute segment, and it's got a structure to it, and and there is a teamwork involved because they've collaborated beforehand, and one team is proposing a. Point of view and a line of argument, and the other sides doing the same in the opposite way. Whereas the panels are people who just met five minutes ago in the green room and are thrown together to to, so to, the, to put the out Q&A a soundbite. Q A format
1: that you don't find engaging. Q and A, or just
0: just panels generally of mm. four or five people on a stage in a sort of atheist convention panel. You know, you the could have six Sam six Harris six. and Richard Dawkins and. Matt Delahunty and a couple of others on a stage and it just doesn't work, I don't think. I, I think panels are lazy, myself. So, there we go. But Jackie Lambie was on Q&A and uh, she had this to say.
2: You know what bothers me with Parliament? They always put in this great stuff, but what they don't feel, do is fill in the gaps. And there is gaps here. There is still 30% of those Australians that lost out on that vote and they are feeling the hurt from that and I don't hear anyone talking about that, which I quite, find quite disturbing. Congratulations, you won. I was part of that thirty seven percent that said no uh, because of my religious beliefs, um, and I've made it very clear to Tasmanians when I was a senator if the. Maj- I'll
0: just pause there. I made it very clear that I said no because of my religious beliefs. It's just like a free pass because it's your religious belief. Any thought is okay. Just. Just by saying, oh, because of my religious beliefs. Oh, well, that's all right then. Whatever you, you know, oh, you want to string black people up by a noose from a tree yeah. just because it's your religious belief? Go ahead.
1: And it just gives me the ear. It's the first I've heard of Jackie's religious beliefs. Were you aware that she was a, had some religious conviction? Look,
0: I wasn't aware she was Aboriginal until a few weeks ago. And the same goes from a lot of the Aboriginal community in Tasmania. I wasn't aware she was a dual citizen until a few weeks ago, and neither was she. No. I wasn't aware of her Scottish ancestry, neither was she. And, uh, no, I wasn't aware of her religious convictions until... I had no idea. Yeah. But let me continue with this grab.
2: I already voted for that, I would vote with them. That is part of my job as I was with the Senator and I have no problem with that. But you still have nearly 40% of Australians out there hurting right now. And what they're worried about now is that people that have been ringing me that have garden weddings, they're making cakes. You know, I had a bloke ring me about two weeks ago saying, Jackie, I want to know what my rights are right now because I do, I only want to, um, marry a uh, man and wife in my garden. And I said, mate, I'm sorry, I can't help you out with that. He's now going to sit in limbo for months. Why should he do it? He has a freedom in this country. He has a right to say, you know what, because of my religious freedom, my religious beliefs, I do I cannot marry you in my backyard. And this is what you are doing to people because you are going out there, bullet a bloody gate, as politicians do, and yet they haven't filled in the gaps. How long are these people going to have to go and go through more pain? They've lost. They're feeling the pain. How much longer do they have to feel more pain?
0: The poor man. The, the pain he's feeling not knowing if he can discriminate against a gay couple. But, you know, like the terrible pain he's going through.
1: Shocking, isn't it? It's so, so, I mean, so you at least agree with his right to discriminate, but you're not sympathetic to his pain, is no. it? because yeah. it's, it's fake pain, isn't it? It's not real pain. <laughs> I mean, well, he's... Uh, so What's is talking? he is he afraid of being uh, litigated against?
0: Well, you know, he, he perhaps thinks he's got to close shop if he if he's going to be forced to um, conduct a gay oh, wedding, see, yeah. you know, or allow one to happen on yeah, his premises. Li- so, but the pain that this man's feeling because he can't, he doesn't know whether he's going to be able to freely discriminate against
1: mm. gay people or not. Terrible. It's terrible. Pretty shocking pain. Yeah, Jackie is. I mean, she's consistently excessive in her rhetoric, isn't she? Mm. But It goes down a treat with some people. It's a whole, um, you know,
0: anti-politician rhetoric. Yeah. Battler at one of the people, you know, and they think, oh, she's a straight
1: talker. A straight talker of complete nonsense. Yeah. yeah. She doesn't seem to have much depth to her arguments, but she she feels that if she she can compensate by coming on really strong, you know, with the the tirade of um, criticism of ordinary politicians and how she's, um, she's not an ordinary politician. She's, you know, she really feels the pain of the ordinary person. Mm. Yeah, she's not very persuasive, I'm afraid. Yeah. Uh,
0: actually, one of the panel members uh, is the current head of the Australian Human Rights Commission who's replaced Gillian Triggs and... She wasn't impressed with the proposition uh, that we wind back the anti-discrimination laws. So that's a good thing from my point of view. Maybe not yours,
1: Twelfth Man. I'm not sure. I don't know about her. Yeah. I wasn't very uh, enamoured of Gillian Triggs, I have to say.
0: Yeah. Um... So, Senator George Brandis, our Attorney-General, says civil celebrants should be able to refuse to officiate ceremonies on conscientious grounds, not just religious grounds. And, interestingly, um, representatives of Australia's 8,500 civil celebrants said they'd not ask for such an exemption and they don't want it.
1: And they're quite happy with Dean Smith's bill as it currently stands. Yeah, but is that similar to the AMA where, you know, they they have a, a, a group position yeah. that not all doctors agree with? Quite possible. Quite possible. I did see that article and I thought yeah. it was interesting. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if, if the vast majority of c- civil celebrants are happy to perform uh, ceremonies for same-sex couples, then... Yeah. Problem solved. Why persecute the minority who are not comfortable with it? Yeah. Just getting back to your question,
0: a survey of (coughs) 1,500 civil celebrants conducted by the Coalition of Celebrant Associations found just 3% would resign if compelled to perform same-sex weddings. So I think the association is speaking on behalf of its members Mm -hmm. and... Brandis is going to an awful lot of trouble for uh, something that the overwhelming majority of the
1: association don't want. So. But there is a principle involved, regardless of the low percentage, that, yeah. hey, yeah. if it's only 3% who don't want to toe the party line, so to speak, why not let them have that um, opt-out? Yeah. Why not let them? Well, what? They are a civil servant. Well, they're not exactly. They're licensed to perform a ceremony. Well, some of them are civil servants. You oh, know. some of them.
0: Yeah. So in a registry office? Yeah. You know, what do you think of that? Should the re- ones in the registry office be
1: able to refuse? I would say no in the registry office because right. that's a, that's a government uh, office and mm. I th- I don't think government officers should ever discriminate. Right. But in terms of private, licensed civil celebrants who go out and perform ceremonies, you know... But there's an argument that it's just it's just a public
0: servant who's out on the road, you know, they're performing a, a public service task.
1: So is a bus driver a public servant? Yes. In a private bus company? No, well, that's
0: totally different because they're not, they're not... They're not... A civil celebrant is conducting a an administrative function authorised and they've got special authorisation
1: by the state to do it. Mm -hmm. Look, again, my argument is uh, why would you want to be married by people who really don't want to do it? You know what I mean? Wouldn't you you rather have a civil celebrant who was happy to be there with you? You you wouldn't want to. But what if you lived in, you know, Arakoon
0: and the only person there Mm. refused to do it?
1: Yeah. You wouldn't be happy, would you? You wouldn't be happy. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'll give you that. You but anyway,
0: there you go, dear listener. Most civil celebrants... Yeah, remote
1: locations certainly present um, a, another problem, another yeah. issue. Um, actually,
0: just going back to that, 3, uh, 3% three said they would resign. 80% said they would happily marry same-sex couples. while 10.5% said they would consider refusing discreetly by claiming they're unavailable. Yeah. There we go. Uh, official statistics show that 75 percent of Australia's annual weddings are now performed
1: by civil celebrants. It just occurred to me the the, the sole civil celebrant in Arakoon might have a hard time convincing the cu- the clients that they're they're all booked up. <laughs> <laughs> because they'll know what they'll know what that celebrant's up to well they'll they know roughly how frequently weddings happen in yes. in the community you know? yes yes,
0: and um got a message from a dear listener who's originally from Uruguay who mentioned that in fact Uruguay is one of those countries that um, that says you must first of all get married in a civil registry and then subsequently if you want to you and you are then married. And subsequently if you want to you can have a religious ceremony. But it's a totally separate and optional
1: extra. So Uruguay has had that for a number of years.
0: Ah uh, where are we Uruguay up to? Uruguay is it? an
1: interesting country, isn't it, in that respect. Um, mm. being located in Latin America, which as we know Is still uh, rife with superstition. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Although I I get the feeling because, as you know, I I work with um, young adults, uh, some of whom are from Latin America, and I get the feeling that more than a few of them are less religious than their parents. Right. I think Uruguay and
0: Paraguay are outliers when it comes to... I don't know about Paraguay, but yes.
1: Uruguay, of course, located between Brazil and Argentina, isn't it, down in the, yeah, somewhere down there. the sort of southeast mm. of South America. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's an interesting case because you'd expect it to be as, as Catholic and as um, religious as the rest of South America, wouldn't you? Yeah, there'd be some reason for it, um, historical. We'll come curious. to that. Mm. They did have a very interesting president a few years yes. ago who was a... Might be all it takes at different times. A very humble man who yes. lived in very humble circumstances did. and refused to accept, you know, elaborate trappings of office. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, final word
0: on all this sort of stuff uh, goes to Bob Catter. And a final, final <clears throat> observation on the same-sex uh, marriage debate from Bob Catter...
2: I mean, you know, people are entitled to their sexual proclivities. You know, I mean, let there be a thousand blossoms bloom, as far as I'm concerned. You know? But I ain't spending any time on it, because in the meantime, every three months, a person is torn to pieces by a crocodile in
1: North Queensland.
0: So we should put the whole country on hold until we sort out that particular It's a very no. compelling
1: point. Very compelling point indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think he's recently switched his medication or something, and it's not quite working? What What goes through that man's mind? It's uh, it's, it's frightening, isn't
0: it? I mean, just the caliber of politician that we've got is is frightening. Twelfth um, man. There's a party going on. Here's a scenario I'm painting for you. And, you know, teenagers, young adults, and uh, um, one of the guys, you know, heads to, I don't know, toilet, bathroom, whatever, passes passes a bedroom, sees a girl asleep on the bed, and decides that he wants to kiss her,
1: and does so. Without her knowledge, she's asleep. What do you think of that? Just a kiss? Yes. I think it's probably quite inappropriate for him to Mm -hmm. um, make any sort of uninvited physical contact uh, on a sleeping person, isn't it? Yes. Particularly. I mean, a kiss does have a certain sexual nature to it. Is it the sort of uh, activity that we would like to promote? Well, yeah, that's an interesting one. Because you know where I'm heading with this, don't you? I gave you, the, I gave you the... Would it make any difference
0: if the guy happened to be from the aristocracy? Would that, would
1: that help at all? In other words, a prince. Perhaps. And what if the, the <laughs> sleeping female... No, no, just stop there. If he a prince, does it help at all? Does it, does it add to his case at all? You know me, Trevor. So. I have no regard for inherited... Um, privilege or status. Yes, indeed. So that's not going to help at all. So on the face of it,
0: that sort of scenario is one that we should look down on and not encourage as a society. As a society, I agree. Correct. So you would be sympathetic then to Sarah Hall, 40 of North Shield, who, uh, who has demanded that her son's school take Sleeping Beauty off the curriculum because the princess doesn't give consent to be kissed and woken up by a prince.
1: What do you think? Oh, no, come on. Um, look, it raises interesting questions, but, I mean, there are all manner of uh, questionable behaviours in old, you know, fairy stories. hmm uh-huh. I think her her problem is that it it, uh, provides um, behavioural models for very young children, Mm. is that it? And that the the prince is uh, taking liberties, inappropriate liberties with a sleeping female. Mm. Would I take it off the reading list? Uh, I don't think I would be too bothered by it, but I would probably be looking for other things to add to the reading list Mm. that might be uh, more uh, enriching and more interesting.
0: I hadn't thought about it too hard until right now, Mm. but I think that we are underestimating people's capacity to recognise a story as opposed to Mm. uh, an instruction manual for how to lead life. And I think even... Even little kids can recognise that that's a story, a fable, and that's not an indicator of how to conduct myself in this life.
1: Surely, surely. Even little kids have that much intelligence. Yeah, Yeah.
0: And if they don't, they need to develop it. They need to be able
1: to discern Mm. storytelling from... Uh, We, uh, as children, I know I can only speak for myself, of course, I used to love watching Robin Hood, Mm. uh, Superman, and there was lots of violence in those programs. I didn't grow up to be a violent person. Yeah. So
0: I think uh, I'm quite comfortable with Sleeping Beauty on that basis.
1: Have you ever seen the original uh, editions of Grimm's Fairy Tales? Uh, They are particularly grim. They are... Amazingly violent. Now, I actually I came across a book review uh, a couple of years ago. It was a, if you like, a straight translation from the original German to English uh-huh. of the complete collection of Grimm's fairy tales, and they published it. I bought a copy. Very interesting. Yes. And a lot of them are very short stories, and stories that we don't normally hear in our usually Disneyf- Disney-fied you know collection of these old stories yes. some of them are extremely violent and tragic you know uh there was one about a, a young mother who left her baby in a bath um because she sensed her other child outside was in some trouble went out to find her her child dead in the garden i forget the, the exact means of death mm. and while she was out there the baby drowned so she came in and you know she probably committed suicide out of grief so the husband comes home from work and whole family's dead yes you know this kind of this level of extreme violence and carnage children cutting other children's throats play acting as a butcher this kind of thing yes. now uh, even uh cinderella
0: yes
1: which is totally different in the in the disney version because in the original um when the prince goes looking for the the foot that fits the slipper Mm -hmm. he he arrives at cinderella's home Uh, horrible old stepmother of course invites him in eager to have him marry one of her you know her her actual daughters Uh, he proceeds to try to fit the slipper to the, the daughter's feet and they are, are, of course, you know, have big feet so they don't fit. Mother instructs one daughter, just slice a bit off your heel. You know, just gives oh, her a knife. Really? Seriously. Really? Tells us just slice a bit off your heel just to make it fit. Right. Unsuccessful. She does. She slices a big chunk off her heels. <laughs> it's unsuccessful. But the shoe fills with blood. Okay. Yes. The prince then takes the slipper, goes to the other daughter. And the mother says, cut off your toes just ah. to make your foot fit. So she cuts off her toes. Yes. Still unsuccessful. Shoe yes. f- fills yes. with more blood. Yes. Then he goes and fits it to Cinderella's foot and it fits. Yes. Even with all the blood inside right. it. Yes. So, of course, Cinderella gets the prize. But yes. That that doesn't appear in any version I've ever seen in my life.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Very violent.
0: Yeah, it's a more interesting tale. Well, the Sleeping Beauty story, dear listener. Italian writer Gian Battista Bassil, original version of Sleeping Beauty called Sun, Moon and Talia was written in the 17th century. In the original Dark World, Talia, the daughter of a lord, falls into a deep slumber after pricking her finger on a magical splinter. The Lord cannot bear the thought of burying his beloved daughter and decides to leave her to rest in one of his estates. One day, a king is led into the estate and falls uh, and is enchanted by Talia's beauty. He tries to awake her, but after failing to do so, he carries her to a bed and has sex with her while she sleeps. The king then leaves Talia... Who falls pregnant and gives birth to twins, a boy and a girl, all while still asleep. She only awakes when one of her children mistakenly sucks the
1: magical the magical splinter out of her finger. Wow. Did you read that? I've yeah. never no, I didn't. There you go. That's the first I've heard of that one. That's an interesting take. Rapes her
0: and she has While she's couple, asleep. She has yeah. a couple of
1: kids and yeah. gives birth all while still asleep. Yeah. And this, of course, uh Appears in court sometimes, doesn't it? In certain cases of uh, inebriated women yes. being being raped while they're asleep. Yes. Yeah.
0: Clearly, you can't give consent when you're in that state. Ah. So uh,
1: there we go. And that's the original. That's interesting, isn't mm. it? It reminds me as of the um, Grimm's fairy tales yes. versions, the original versions. Yeah. And there are a lot of things like that in these old European folk tales. There are. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and often the, um,
0: the mother was actually cruel, but to make the story seem more palatable, they created a stepmother. That story evolves over time into an evil stepmother in these situations when the original one just had an evil mother. <laughs> so, yeah, so there we go.
1: Dear Listener,
0: Not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently
2: think to yourself, "Great, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link.
0: A couple of stories about statues. Um, uh, Hundreds of Catholics turned out for an impromptu prayer vigil following the desecration of a statue of Mary at a Sydney church. The statue was attacked at St Paul of the Cross Church in the early hours of Monday with heads of both Mary and baby Jesus being severed. Hundreds turned out of the church on the evening following the vandalism to pray the rosary in reparation to God for the senseless act. I'm just impressed, Twelfth Man, the ability to motivate people to get together. Like, we couldn't rustle up a hundred secularists to do anything. And, you know, the statue gets its head knocked off and hundreds of them are there. yeah. It's interesting, this is the it? battle that we have: is their ability to motivate people into action. Like we've just called for people to write to the, to write a simple email to Malcolm Turnbull or ring him off his office, and nobody's going to do it. Maybe, Maybe two or three of you are. Tell me if you do send me a
1: note. I'd love to know.
0: But you know, we we, we won't get a hundred.
1: What what it raises in my mind, Trevor, is that um, if you if you were to. You know, have a conversation with people and try to persuade them that religion is a pa- still a powerful influence in people's lives and in our in our society. Um, this is part of the reason we have trouble getting traction electorally, is because most people, just you know, those people who no longer believe, yeah. just don't think it has that much power anymore in society or that yeah. much influence. Now, I'm persuaded, having studied religion uh, at university in an anthropological and sociological sense, that it still has enormous influence and enormous power to motivate people um, to behave in certain ways and engage in certain activities. Um, and and the, here is proof. Here is proof. They're statues. They're in, inanimate objects. Mm-hmm. And people. so many people were motivated through a senseless act of vandalism. And, uh, you know, I certainly don't approve of such hmm. vandalism myself, and I don't think you do either. Um, but it just demonstrates the power of the... I mean, it's an idea. I mean, as humans, we're animals that uh, build our... create our world based on ideas. Religion is nothing but ideas at, at, at its base. Wow, it's the tribalism, you know. Well, tribalism the word is... word
0: goes out, it. hey, tribe.
1: Tribalism it's is certainly part of it. Mm. But the the motivating factor in, in this behaviour is uh, their idea that these inanimate objects mm. contain some sort of special power or significance in their lives. Oh,
0: and it might also be, you know, our tribe, our community has been attacked by yes. this action. In other words, Let's an attack t- on their identity. Let's circle the wagons and gather together and... Uh, is a show of solidarity, I there's think.
1: A, that's certainly a factor. Yes, mm. I agree.
0: But anyway, that's not the only statue in the news, no, dear listener. The other one was a doozy, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think probably it will be the feature image for this podcast. It's a beauty, but it's a uh, Blackfriars Priory School was forced to cover up a brand new statue after its unfortunate design of a kneeling boy and a saint called a social media storm and. In this, um, in this statue, the saint is holding what I think is possibly a small loaf of bread. Mm. But it could be easily construed for something else. It and the way be. the little boy is kneeling down,
1: helping him to hold the bread roll. It's the proximity it, it, of the loaf of bread to the priest's um, nether regions. Nether regions. It looks almost as if it's appearing through a gap in the robes, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It's uh, And the boy looks um, totally um, willing and able. He's, he's, he's holding and, his hand yes, and, uh, beneath the said loaf. Yes. And it looks as if he's asking the priest, what do you want me to do with it? And it's... It's unbelievable that that design got past the planning it's stage. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So what anyway? do you think? Yeah. They could have seen it with our eyes or with, you know, I mean, it's not just our eyes, for goodness sake. The children at the school were having a, you know, getting great value out of taking photographs of it from various angles. <laughs> and that's why they had to cover it, because the students apparently were milling around the statue taking photos of it. Yes. And posting them online. Yes. Yes. Unbelievable. Schoolies has just wrapped
0: up on the Gold Coast. Year 12 students in Queensland and northern New South Wales often head to surface Paradise for schoolies and... Uh, I think it's getting tamer as the years go by, and very controlled, perhaps. But one of the features of schoolies is the number of volunteers who are there helping the kids out, making sure that they get home to their units. They're patrolling the streets, so if kids get into trouble, get uh, home to bed. You mean? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and a lot of these volunteers, twelve men, are uh, from Christian religious organisations. Unsurprising. Yeah. The whole Red Frogs is a whole, It's all originates with um, a religious group. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, you know, one of the dangers, uh, you know, people normally associate with schoolies is, is getting drunk. Uh, the other danger is just dodging the evangelicals in the streets of Surface Paradise and Cavill because they are thick on the ground. Oh, really? I it's wasn't a, aware yeah, of Yeah, during schoolies. It's a great hunting ground for them. So, mm. so dear schoolies, beware of, of toolies and beware of uh, evangelicals with their placards calling for you to praise Jesus. So that's wrapped up. Um, Nick Cave... Uh, Australian singer, great bass voice. Have you ever heard any of his music? He's
1: really very little, good. in fact. Yeah. I I haven't been a follower of his career. Right, uh, he's got some good stuff.
0: Anyway, um, there was a bit of a movement by a group called BDS—Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions—which have been pressuring musicians and artists to not perform in Israel and because of their oppression of the Palestinians and Nick Cave said well I don't agree with that and he could have just left it at that but he took a principled stand and said actually I wasn't planning on going to Israel but because of your telling me that I shouldn't go I will go what do you think?
1: I applaud him Hmm. I mean it's it's not as if he is um lending moral support to the Israeli state or government he's he was merely saying Israeli musicians and artists and music fans surely they have as much um not not only as much right to access uh, international acts as as others. Mm. But they may well have as much to offer the rest of the world Mm. as um, artists and fans from other countries.
0: Mm. Uh, Cave said musicians shouldn't have to suffer this public humiliation from Roger Waters and Co. every time they flirt with the idea of performing in Israel. And interestingly, 12th Man... This group BDS doesn't seem to have the same stance in relation to China or exactly. Saudi Arabia exactly. or a whole bunch of
1: repressive. They're very repressive selective outrageous. in their outrage, aren't they?
0: Mm. There was something posted on the uh, Secular Party Facebook page, I believe, and in the comments.
1: Were? The comments were, um, well, they were mixed, but uh, as is usually the case, um, a lot of people who approve of articles don't necessarily make comments. It's usually people who strongly disapprove of things that make comments. And, yeah, it did attract quite a lot of negative criticism, but, um, uh, you know. At least one person resigned, is that right? From the secular party yeah, yeah of, of it, that well he, article being... he claimed it wasn 't just that article, he right. claimed it was a, a succession of what he considered to be right wing crap right um, i mean what 's right wing and and look to his credit, I forget the name of the commentator now, but somebody else uh, responded, "What is right wing about uh, defending ordinary Israelis?" you know ordinary secular israelis what is right wing about that Mm. you just can't please some people can't please some people no yeah yeah
0: i think actually i think i heard that that commentator um as they walked off the facebook page
2: that's a bloody outrage it is i want to take this all the way to the prime minister
0: yeah i think that was him um Oh, Twelfth Man. Let's just see. We're running over time here, as we always do, and I'm going to try and pick some of the highlight ones. Um, did you see the video of the robot
1: that can I do did. backflips? I was very impressed.
0: I've got a link to it, dear listener. This this robot which looks like something out of a Terminator sort of movie, and it's jumping up and down on boxes and then does a backflip off a box, and it's... It's quite spooky. You sort of look at it and you think, oh my goodness, they've really moved ahead with this whole robotic technology. It's rapid. It's very impressive, isn't it? It is. It's very impressive. And you think to yourself, what if they strap a gun onto one of these things and start heading it out into the battlefield? It's going to be formidable. Absolutely. So we're not far off that whole scenario Mm -hmm. that you're seeing in the movies. So... If you want to see a frightening
1: example of what robots are up to, uh, well, we already have um, you know drone aircraft yes. firing missiles, and it won't be long be- before probably most of the combat aircraft are remotely controlled, including helicopter gunships, etc., yeah. Yeah. tanks. It'll, it'll all be remote control. Yeah. Well, not all, but I, I would say most of the high risk. Um, You know, high-risk combat um, scenarios will be uh, dominated by remote-control weapon systems. Yes.
0: Um, Article here, Twelfth Man, from Chris Bonner, and it's in the John Menadou blog, saying that wealthy families are turning away from elite private schools. And uh, the writer says it's hardly surprising because for some time we've known the results coming out of schools largely reflect which students walk in through the front gate each day. And parents are increasingly asking what are they actually getting for the fees they pay. On a national level, the fee amounts can hardly be called an investment. In fact, Australia overspends... $5 5 billion dollars each year on schools where there is no measurable achievement gain compared with the government school down the road about 3 billion comes from the taxpayer the rest from parents many of
1: whom seem to be having second thoughts I wasn't aware of that I Yeah I I was under the impression there was an increasing drift towards private schools
0: Well I think what it's saying is that there's lots of wealthy families are turning away from it. I think they might be made up for by poorer families who are scraping to get their kids in there, not fully understanding they're wasting their money. So that's from Chris Bonner. And Twelfth Man, you would be familiar with the whole Colburn situation and how school funding came about in the first place? Started in the 1960s, didn't it? Mm. And... There was a Catholic so there was no funding for Catholic schools back in that time around the 1960s, the end of the Menzies era and <clears throat> one of the Catholic schools in Goulburn had reached such a decrepit point, I think with their toilet block that the government said, "You need to fix up this toilet block, or else we just have to close the school down." and the Catholic nuns said, "Well, we don't have the money, we can't." close this we we can't fix it up and then she very cunningly said you know what uh if we have to close this school we're going to close all of our catholic schools in Goulburn so they did with the result that there was hundreds of kids who uh, were booted out of the maybe three catholic schools in Goulburn and of course, there wasn't time for the state school to ramp up capacity to take these kids on. So the government folded and provided money for Catholic schools in certain circumstances. I think her name was Celeste, Sister Celeste, or something like that. She should go down as a bloody saint. She will in, be sainted. In, in, I would in have the no doubt. Catholic Church. Because she performed a miracle. She turned. A, a decrepit toilet block into a $3 billion a year, you know, enterprise. Like, that's, that's turning water into wine. Oh, uh, it's it, better than that. It is. It is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> a- anyway, uh, people are often bemused by the argument, why are we funding these private schools? And, and people will say, well, we pay our taxes. We're entitled to our share of taxes being spent on our kids and if we want to bump up the, uh, you know, the amount of money in our school, then we should be able to. But what people need to understand is that... Uh, I'm just going to read an extract from a 38-page report on school funding and what's going on. The calculations from my school reveal more than a few ironies. We looked closely at Goldburn the place where state aid to non-government schools symbolically began. Uh, If that happened today, it would now cost only 1% more to educate all of Goldburn's Catholic school students in government schools. There would be capital costs in expanding accommodation at the public schools but $14.4 million was spent by the Australian government on capital improvements improvements in the three Catholic schools in Goulburn between 2009 and 2015. That sort of money would purchase quite a few extra classrooms in the government schools. So ongoing operating, if the Catholic schools closed in Goulburn, we would pay 1% more because we're already paying basically the full state government amount to these schools and, okay, we'd have to build some infrastructure, some more classrooms, but in a, a six-year period, the government spent $14.5 million on Goldburn Catholic schools. You do the maths, dear listener.
1: Why are we supporting these guys? We shouldn't yeah. be. It's, it's Look, you to know, the if-
0: detriment of our society.
1: Obviously, with with hindsight, the the wise thing would have been to for the government to take over the Catholic schools and say, "Well, you don't want to run them anymore. We'll buy them off you." Yes, we will compulsorily acquire them in the compulsory same way.
0: Pass a law, compulsorily acquire them in the same way that when we need a road yeah. running through somewhere, we compulsorily acquire houses. We would do exactly the same.
1: I noticed on a road in Brisbane near where I live. Uh, A whole row of quite expensive houses, it's Mm. fairly prime real estate Mm. near the Brisbane River, have been compulsorily acquired and demolished. Some of them, I think, were only built a few years ago. Yes, to widen the road. To widen the road, yes. How are you feeling about that libertarian 12th man? I, I, I just think that they're going about it the wrong way because they're just moving the... Bottleneck further down the road. I don't think they're going to fix anything because the volume of traffic won't decrease. Okay. What say we're just running out of water and we need a
0: new dam somewhere, and the government says there's only one place we can put a dam, and it has to be here, and we need to resume
1: these hundred farms. You're okay with that? In in the case of water supply, I think it's it's hard to argue that people can easily drink something else. Good. I I just didn't want to have to have another argument with you on another crucial point, so that's nice to know we
0: <laughs> at least we agree on that.
1: We do um, agree on that. We are big bags of water and we we need a supply of it.
0: Yeah. Well, twelfth man, I reckon we've we've done enough. We're We've missed... Uh, we put in a good innings. Yeah, we have. You've had 12th man. And... Yes, for a 12th man, you've put in a good innings. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, Scott, we missed you, but we'll catch up with you yeah. next week. Dear listener, thanks for tuning in. And, oh, oh yeah, no technical issues, man. Thank you. If you are a patron to the show, you know that you are. Thank you. It is very much appreciated, uh, very much so. If you're not a patron, then think about becoming one. You'll have a warm... Feeling inside, Uh, if you do, knowing that you're supporting this enterprise that we've got going here. uh, There are a few expenses with hosting fees and other bits and pieces, so every little bit helps. A dollar a show is all we ask, and otherwise, dear listener, we'll catch up with you next week. Bye for now. Bye, listener. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast?